welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. Today's episode is a special one where we are focusing on EDS and HSD, that is to say hypermobility type Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and hypermobile hypermobility spectrum disorders. So we've had a little changeover and instead of Dane being in the hot seat with me, we are inviting a very special guest, Taylor. She is normally behind the lens and we have now left Dane in charge of the technology, which could work out well or poorly. And hopefully we have a podcast by the end of this. I have faith. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So welcome. (laughs) Um, So as mentioned, Today's episode is focusing on EDS, specifically the subtype hypermobility type EDS and hypermobile spectrum disorders. We are going to use the acronyms EDS and HSD. There are 13 subtypes of EDS and we are focusing on one of the more common ones, hypermobility type EDS today, uh, that goes hand in hand with some of the same symptoms that someone with HSD will have. The main, main difference is that um, EDS is hereditary, so thank one of your parents, that's where you probably got it from. (laughs) Sorry to all the parents out there. It's not a blame thing, it's just where it came from. Uh, HSD, on the other hand, is um, a specification that's usually given to someone when EDS is ruled out. Both can be just as extreme or just as subtle as the other, so it's not like one's better or worse, sadly, (laughs) we can't say you have HSD, that's so much better, Um, because both of them exist on a really broad spectrum. And EDS was first noted back in like the late 1800s, and then the classification for it um, was first like formally described in the 1930s. Then they had the diagnostic criteria for it, the Villefranche ones in 1998, so very recent. And then they were reclassified into the current 13 subtypes, I'm speaking about EDS right now, the heritable one, um, in 2017. So we're speaking about a type that cannot be detected on a genetics testing. It is usually diagnosed by a primary care physician who has expertise in the area, sometimes by rheumatologists um, or other specialists of the like, but it's always diagnosed by somebody in medicine um, who's familiar with it, and it's ongoing. So as you can tell, it's not something that has had a whole lot of research done in it until relatively recent history, and we're seeing more and more of it crop up in the sense that it's been inherited, so it's been around for a long time, inherited, sorry, I can't speak today, um, but it's, it's just not been widely recognized. And then there are some things that we'll discuss today in terms of, you know, why it may be a little bit more prominent or not. Suffice it to say, if, if we imagine a spectrum, there might be someone with HSD or EDS on one end of the spectrum who needs a lot of medical intervention. And people with the same diagnosis might be on the other end of that spectrum and need very minimal intervention. And then, of course, we have that massive gray zone in between. (laughs) So when we discuss EDS and HSD today, uh, we are discussing the, the principles that may help someone along that spectrum with the understanding that we are not giving any individual recommendations because we simply can't. We are all very much our own unique 
humans and much of what has influenced us in our lifetime is also the environment within which our organism is existing which is a theme we've <laughs> spoken to on other uh, podcasts. So, Taylor, do you want to give the listeners a little background about you? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just for context, uh, I am 30 years old, and I have been uh, attempting to navigate this landscape for my, obviously for my entire life, but it is that, it is that intersection of the, the breadth of the spectrum and how many different representations there are that had taken me on this journey that ultimately led me to Freya, but I spent the majority of my adolescence and youth sick in some fashion or another, and I was grateful that I had and have parents that treated and attempted to treat me holistically, which meant that they were emphasizing not only medical solutions, but supplementation and different routes that I could try, and I had a lot of success or some success in that regard in terms of seeing symptoms be alleviated. And I was in the gym pretty much since I was 12 trying to understand why I was having physical issues, but I still couldn't get a grasp on it. I was still hitting peaks and valleys of health versus medical crisis, ending up in a hospital. And I, could just, I just couldn't find consistency but I had enough strength and enough control that I could move into adulthood and move into being a functional human being on my own. And I had a movement practice and a personal health practice that served me quite well for many years until I hit kind of like a new, a new crux in my stress. And uh, I went through a divorce. I went through... Uh, a move across the country and a lot of just like different inputs that really started taxing my system and after a a big work trip I hit a moment in which my body really needed my attention and it had come up like that before but this time this time I couldn't grab it again and this time I seemed to get worse and I started to degrade and this was the first time that any label of this nature was really suggested to me and it was when I started interacting with people that had different information that I started having different responses to similar inputs. What I had realized through that process was that no matter what I was eating, no matter what I was doing, no matter how many other ways that I was treating myself, if I didn't believe that I was going to get better and if I wasn't actually treating the stress and the mental inputs all of the rest of the things that I was doing was essentially useless. And that's what I had came, come to learn through that culmination of I was doing the best that I could. I was doing all of the things that I had been told. And it still, I wasn't, my body wasn't on board because I wasn't on board. And missing that mental health aspect to it was what made it take until my late 20s to even hear this term, to even... Cl- believe that I was starting to get to a place of resolution and the entire time I had spent in the the western system I had just been given more fear I'd been given more confusion I had been given more avenues that seemed to either lead to dead ends or things that weren't representing what I was going through and I was 
getting into a deeper mental hole as a result of going down that process because I was going, I know that I feel things. I know something is wrong, but when I go out and when I'm seeking validation or when I'm seeking help, I'm not getting it. And I'm getting more in my head going, am I creating this? Is this something that is even real? And the missing piece there was the mental component, was that I was speaking to people that while they may have had the best of intentions, they didn't holistically understand the problem, and therefore they couldn't holistically treat the problem. And I don't know if it was the universe or just like good plotting or whatever, but eventually I found my way to Freya. And it was as soon as Freya walked in for our first consult, I had previously been meeting people with this diagnosis that either had mobility aids or had intense need for like pain medication and Freya walked in I was like this chick's got quads like she is strong and immediately I saw a different body in front of me and I saw a different mindset and we had this conversation that was just different than any other conversation I had previously had and from that moment the advice that you gave me was instead of acting like you're sick and acting like you're broken act like this is something that will help you and that started to be the piece of freedom for me, was the mindset. I didn't end up with a movement practice that was radically different. I didn't end up with a diet that was radically different. I had to change my mind, and I needed that input to come from an outside source because my inside source was so muddled at that point. So it was bringing that back in that made all of the pieces that I had already been accessing finally effective, and... Yeah, that was the history that brought me to feeling like not only do I have control over what's going on with me, but I'm not broken. I am more than okay. I just happen to be pretty wiggly. And seeing you through that and knowing your history has given me so much more confidence going forward. And yeah, like I'm just so grateful for that experience and having you. Yay. Thank you. I'm going to get teary now. This is like, <laughs> you're not supposed to say that. Bring it back <laughs> you're not down. supposed Bring to it. make me emotional. <laughs> um, but part of the reason, even behind that emotion, is that this is the, the couple terms that are coined with EDS, is that it's an invisible illness, and that they are medical zebras. So that you touched on the word validation. The challenge is... Um, when it's invisible, and the reason you can doubt yourself, and, and one of the many reasons that can lead to episodes of depression and anxiety and, and an inability to see your own worth as a human is because sometimes that invisibility, obviously someone thinks, oh, but you look healthy, which for a lot of people with UDS is like massively triggering because you just, if they just shared with you that something's wrong, and you say, but you look healthy, like you just devalued everything that they said. It's just like a victim of anything. If the first person they tell doesn't believe them, it leaves a massive impact on them. And even if someone believes them 10 years later, they have a lot of medical trauma in the context of EDS and HSD to heal because they had a lot of people take away that validation. And for me, um, I obviously come from a different background, 
but I knew something was weird or not normal. And there were certain symptoms as a kid that I dismissed. And I come from an academic family. Uh, I come from an athletic family. And I am like the luckiest person <laughs> in my mind. This was like the best situation I could have personally been born into for me because it removed some of that fear. Um, and I was, you know, I joked that I was always trying to keep up <laughs> to my brothers and my my parents but um in certain athletic sort of endeavors and just wanted to be part of my own little tribe which was very helpful because it also showed me what I was capable of and when I was very young I remember distinctly having massive GI distress and just telling myself this was normal it's totally normal to have diarrhea sorry I know that's TMI but hey, everybody poops, and it's actually a really good insight into the rest of your body um, for long stretches, at, followed by constipation or followed by, like, bloat and things like that, and then cyclical. But as a kid, you don't have any background. You just kind of take what's thrown your way, and you're like, cool, this is normal. Everyone else seems calm, so I'm going to be calm. Um, and on the athletic side of things, I, I remember the first time my hips hurt, and it was in a canoe, and I was quite young, and I just didn't understand why everyone else could sit still and I could not sit still for more than a few minutes. And it drove me nuts because I was just like, I don't, I'd get into a position, I'd be like, yeah, I'm super comfortable and I'm contributing. And then all of a sudden I was like, this really freaking hurts, my legs are numb. Um, and so those were like the first little flash in the pan things. Um, but then I, I was also athletic and I actually, I credit dance to a lot of my resilience too because dance taught me how to pull up and support my structure in a way and train my feet to be strong in a way that now this many years later I have a lot of respect for I was like oh that spared me from a lot of things because the proprioception it helped develop was huge because with EDS uh, and HSD or HEDS and HSD they often get called clumsy or they might identify as clumsy. And that's because when your ligaments and your joints are so lax, sorry, your ligaments are so lax, then your joints end up moving farther than the normal, like I'm going to say body typical range of motion. And then your brain doesn't have a good map of where that is. Then yeah, you can be clumsy. You think the doorway is there. And then next thing you know, you're smoked into the doorway. And I mean, it still happens, but I would credit um, my classical ballet training uh, impacted me in a lot of ways. And I loved it and I thrived in it. I certainly had more hiccups than I like physical hiccups in terms of pain and subluxing kneecap. And I, I distinctly remember uh, one, one person just said, no, you're fine. You were jumping yesterday. And that epitomizes EDS in a way, and I'm just going to generalize EDS and HSD. We're just going to talk about hypermobility in a way. Um, because, yes, sometimes you can do something on Monday, and then Tuesday you can't. And sometimes that something is jumping, and sometimes it's walking, and sometimes it's standing up straight. And that's why a lot of, one of the many reasons why a lot of people think, like, is this in my head? And so within all my athletics, I, I had health events in my teens uh, with onset of, of menstruation, which is a common thing. A lot of symptoms get worse because they are influenced by hormone levels. Um, so I had cyclical illness, dramatic weight loss, a bunch of other things. But suffice it to say, I also had a family that was incredibly um, well-versed in the human body. And granted, we didn't know much about hypermobility, so it wasn't until 
many years later that like 14 years later that I got my diagnosis but at that point in time I had done so much troubleshooting I had even gone into the profession of of studying humans and then helping human studying human movement and physiology um, in university because I was so invested in figuring out what makes health possible and I thought maybe there was a formula I could follow that would make everything successful athletically um, and make life easier and make me be able to live the way the way a lot of my peers did and and I had different dietitians I had nutritionists I had naturopaths I had functional medicine practitioners uh, and I cannot like the list goes on and on and on I explored everything I could and um, just because I wanted to find a point where I could quote-unquote be normal and it leads to a lot of frustration and a lot of self-doubt when you can't find that normal, when you feel like you, you kind of get on, you get your stride, and you're like, yeah, this is good. And then all of a sudden, you just got smoked by a metaphorical Mack truck. And I would wind up bedridden for a whole weekend, and I wouldn't tell anyone because I, I just didn't even know how to make sense of it. And I was just trying to get through and uh, a lot of people would say, oh, you're just tired because you work too hard. And granted, I, I, I think we're both high performers or high achievers, and I think a lot of people are. Um, but there were certain parts where I was like, this isn't normal. And finally, I worked with someone in the UK, and I think the UK is a little more advanced in terms of recognition of, of uh, hypermobility disorders, uh, congenital or not, and he was the first person who says, you know, Frey, you really shouldn't have to try this hard. And then I started working with another practitioner from the UK and a couple other practitioners who were body workers. So this guy was working in functional medicine. The other others were working in um, hands-on therapy. And all of them were saying, like, your tissues don't respond in a way that we would have predicted. They're, they're hypersensitive. So meaning they found out, we all found out, that they actually needed to give me a smaller treatment dose, and then I'd be okay, because too much of a treatment dose meant that I just like got violently ill in some instances, or get a huge mood swing, or felt like I was honestly not sure I could walk, because I felt so disconnected throughout my body, and so it was with that process that this started to be suggestive, like, oh, this might be, you know, this, this might be a sign of a systemic thing, and wound up in a lot of different... Um, surgeon appointments and specialist appointments and one of the biggest things for me was just I'd been a patient for a long time I didn't particularly enjoy that process because much of the time I didn't feel like it resulted in answers or it resulted in me feeling like the doctor just told me it was in my head uh, or I needed and I quote to do yoga and stress less and my god I know that that comes from a good place but man, is that the most dismissive thing that somebody can say when you've like gone through all these precursors, you wind up in a specialist office and they're like, I don't know, you need to do yoga and stress less. And then I'm like, but if I do yoga to a certain type, I get sick. Like hot yoga made me violently ill. I tried it twice because I'm like, okay, maybe that one time was fluke. Anyway, so the, the, the long story short of it is the athletics um, for me really helped and I have been challenged on that throughout the course of time. And even when I got my diagnosis, and we'll talk about diagnosis uh, shortly. But all of this comes together in the, in the sense that it's not in your head. Your head will help you manage it. And your label doesn't 
determine who you are, how you'll go through things, because we're all so different. Uh, But the medical zebra term is quite accurate, (laughs) because when you hear the sound of hooves, most most of us would think horses. And so the whole thing with EDS is think zebra, because it's they sound like a horse, but something's weird. Many things are weird. (laughs) And until we look at them, you mentioned holistically, uh, we're using that as like a whole term. Until we look at the whole picture, then we can't see the forest for the trees. And that's where it that validation and diagnosis piece really comes in and plays into that mental aspect. I know at least for me, because as I was going through trying to get relief for my symptoms when I was getting trying to get relief for my gut issues and I also got told the same thing of like you should stress less and you should do yoga I was 12 years old and I had a bleeding ulcer in my stomach but that was their advice to me and I was I had all of these issues coming up and they were being treated separately and so as a result to try and get a diagnosis it was like being in a silo this person thought this thing didn't communicate with this thing and because the symptoms had such variability in terms of presentation of when they would be severe versus like when I would actually go in for an exam and they wouldn't be severe. There's this disconnect between the experience and the way that the person that's trying to diagnose you is applying their logic. And there just seemed to be so many dead ends as a result of diagnosis. And I know that I was seeking that label for validation for going like, I want to know that there's actually something happening. And, and it just, that process made it worse in the system because of that. And I know that we've spoken about how many other individuals ha- get stuck exactly there in that stage because of how difficult the diagnostic process is. And you know better than anybody about that. Yeah, I mean, the first, the first time it was even suggested, like I was working at a sports clinic and it was one of my colleagues who said like, you know what, Freya, you might have EDS. Does your dad have anything or does your mom have anything? We started talking about the family history and we were like, oh, if it quacks like a duck, then it might be a zebra Um, in this context. Um, And, but even then, I didn't pursue it and I didn't Google it. And I have often found, and this is just my personal thing, this isn't what anyone else has to do. I have often found that when someone proposes something that to me might be a little bit like mind-boggling or, or, or potentially like totally change my filter. I need my time <laughs> to figure out, like I need to A, keep my identity and know who I am, and I also need to understand what I'm capable of influencing and changing. And so eventually, you know, getting the diagnosis for me, at first I was like, oh, okay, it's not in my head. There is something weird. And then I was like, oh, shit, it's not just in my head. <laughs> there is something weird. Because <laughs> my favorite thing about this this whole thing, and the worst thing, my favorite thing is that it's invisible. Because when I was a teen, and again, this is personal, when I was a teen, uh, some of my illness was very visible. And the judgment that entailed was awful. I'm like, just, I was a, I'm still an empathetic person, but I was very sensitive, very shy. If I could blend into the wall, perfect. That's where I wanted to be. So to not blend in and to have people walk up to me on the street and give me unsolicited advice was like massively horrifying. At home, I could be me. My parents saw me as me. My brother saw me as me. My family treated me as me always. And that was like my happy place. So 
when when I got better and you know I've had periods where it became more visible and and, and not but when I was invisible uh, to the point of like blending in with you know anybody else on the street I was happy with that part of it because the judgment unfortunately is is rough and it makes me really feel for anybody who regularly needs needs to use um mobility aids and braces and and who has disabilities that are more visible because that's a huge kettle of fish but it's just there's judgment around it and it doesn't belong and every person on the street has their own story and like yeah it's just that's the way it is but that became one of my favorite things is because no one had to know the downside is that then you're met with when you're going through hell Someone's like, but you look so healthy. So that's the downside of the invisible part. And that's what leads to a lot of us uh, suffering from different levels of anxiety and lack of validity. And there were a lot of times where I was like, maybe I'm just not capable anymore. Like, maybe I just don't have enough drive anymore. Maybe I'm not pushing through. And the answer was just like, no, you've been pushing through for a really long time at the brink of what your body's willing to, to do. And now you're like fully melting down. And, um, and so, yeah, it's that, it's that double-edged sword of just like, yay, it's not in my head. And then it's like, oh, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, like you never really think about like, oh, the existentialism that's going to come along yeah. with this validation, like this thing that I was seeking for so long, I, like you're chasing it like it's going to be the answer. And then you get the answer and you realize that the answer is just the, the tip of the iceberg and that all of the work lays ahead. And mm-hmm. we were having that conversation of, do you wish you had got your diagnosis sooner? Do you wish that you had known earlier? And I can't decide because it's bittersweet. Um, I, I was introduced to that word, I think I was like 25 or 26 before I'd ever heard it for the first time. And having made it that far into life, like I had a lot of coping mechanisms. I had a lot of tools. I also considered myself strong and I was really grateful that I had gotten to that place ultimately by myself to some degree or another but the drawback for that was the paranoia and like my internal world, no trust, no faith, so scared, so stressed. And I had to undo that as well. And so even though I had confidence in myself, I also was like, nothing can help me. And that became a barrier in which I stayed in my own silo. And the distrust that I started gaining in the medical system was paramount to the fact that I would basically bomb my own appointments going like 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 I should have had a tinfoil hat at some points being like you can't help me you're against me it's your fault and it's like your your internal world becomes that these people of safety are the opposite and so like that was built but at the same time if I had had that verbiage earlier I would have been able to apply a little bit more kindness and compassion and also like the appropriate tools it would have just set me up on that road earlier but it would also potentially open the door for codependency and a lack of trust in oneself and so it can also like it can result in that fear avoidance behavior if if it's not well understood or supported and so I don't know how do you feel like do you wish you'd known well and see that's where it's like I didn't google when it was first proposed the first two times it was proposed I didn't and I knew that we had a family thing. (laughs) 
like laxity wise, surgery wise, so on. Like I knew that was there. I had been given a label at a very young age. So I was, uh, because of that label, a different label, uh, regarding bone health. But because of that, it, it led me down the path of health in the, like, I never want to be feeling like I have to get emergency surgery or, or whatnot. So anyway, that's my own, that's my own story. And I also have a like really strong desire, uh, again, just from my own experience to not take medication because I've had multiple bad events with medication and uh, as a kid. So I can't tell you the last time I've had a couple surgeries since and for both didn't take medication. So part of my resistance, I think, was I didn't want any new info yet um, because I felt like I was sort of figuring it out with the new practitioners I'd found. Now, had I not found those people, who didn't under, who understood hypermobility? I may have wanted one sooner, and sure, it probably would have helped in the sense that, like, it, it when I did get it, it affirmed, it validated, it also affirmed what I some of the things I was doing and had felt. I was like, oh, that's why. Uh, it you know I knew I had cranial cervical instability or atlantoaxial instability I knew that for years before my diagnosis I knew that it caused mood drops I knew that when my neck was um funky um funky <laughs> general term technical term funky yeah um I knew that it, it could cause uh, internal mood changes it could cause cause digestive distress it could cause wicked headaches it could cause shoulder pain neck pain all sorts of things and so it was almost like EDS when I did get that diagnosis. It was validating of, of my experience, but it also brought all these other pieces into one thing. And I was like, oh, it's just one thing. Just being a very loose term here, uh, because that one thing is actually multisystemic, which means it, it can impact all of your systems. Um, so that's, I play that in my head. I'm like, would it have helped? I'm not sure. Again, uh, I think that for a lot of people, it can help as long as they know that that's just the filter with which your body was built. And now it's up to you to acquire the tools with help. I have a good healthcare team. Same, like it's taken a very long time and a lot of uh, out of pocket investments. Uh, you know, friends were making down payments on houses. I was trying to buy my health back. And, and that's not like a, uh, a bad thing. I, I have the privilege to have spent it on that because I didn't want to have to live seeing practitioners and and of of various sorts every single week. I just wanted to feel less like a patient, and so um, it has has been good. Some of it was education, but I think the diagnosis is such an interesting thing because sometimes people get it, and this is where I've had a lot of consults: is people have had their diagnosis given to them. Um, and that can be a relief because it can be a relief of like, okay, we've got something to explain this. But then they're scared because they have no idea what comes next. And there's a thought process of being able to find a fix for it. Or if you Google it, you can find some of the scariest stories. And um, obviously there are better resources now. Like EDS UK is a great resource. They've done a lot of work with doctors over there. Um, so they really do promote a lot of different, like they talk about a lot of different aspects. They promote community, um, it, not intervention, sorry, um, community-based groups like support groups and so on. So there's more positive information. Positive meaning what you can control as, as a patient to feel like your own person and less like a patient back when you know my symptoms first came about 
there was little to little to no information and some of the older people I know who had the diagnosis like in their 60s they said that all they were told was just yeah you're super loose you're probably gonna have to have a bunch of surgeries out you go which again it doesn't come down to actionable things and I think a label is only as good as like it's only as good as your understanding of what you as a human being are able to do with it especially one as broad as this right because it doesn't tell you what's going to happen to you at all (laughs) it does tell you how you're constructed differently but it doesn't tell you what will happen to you in life no but that's like the conditioning that we've got around labels is that we seek them and we want them to be these identifiers that we become this and I I had exactly that I had the opposite experience if I went deep into the mental hole right away and regardless of what information I was coming back with the filter that I was looking at it with told me that I was in danger told me that bad things were going to happen and so I I drummed that situation up in my mind and then the people that I was meeting when I was seeking further validation they weren't old but they had been diagnosed but they had had similar experiences where they had basically been told they were doomed, they were broken. And I had heard many times, like, basically that I was terminal and, like, using terms like that, that, like, your vitality essentially is over became the thing that I started to believe. Mm. And that mindset was the most, most poisonous piece specifically because it poisoned my desire to move. The information that I started getting was your body is weak, your body is frail, you are broken, be careful, be further careful, don't move, like live in a bubble basically. Some of that was actual outside input and some of that was internal input that I had started crafting based on the idea that I had. And what terrible advice, like it's just straight up bullshit. And that, but that was what was accessible. And when I was, I was meeting other EDSers trying to find community, try to find answers, trying to find commonality. And I had lots of lunches with women that were in my age group that had knee braces, had walkers, basically had accepted that they were going downhill starting at like 25. And I accepted that and I saw that as my future until I, again, met you and saw your quads. And I'm going, I'm going to go, I'm going to just listen to her and I'm just going to try listening to her. And that was exactly Freya's first advice to me was, okay, you have this label, try it on but instead of trying it on and like taking yourself down try it on as the thing that's going to free you what are the tools what what is the information that this provides you with that you can now take and empower yourself with to make different choices and you suggested to me like act like you have eds do you get better regardless of if you have the diagnosis and so i did that and i was like okay i'm gonna act like i have this does does do things get better and they did and then i just kept going with that and the more that I understood how much my own input was involved in that, the more freedom that I got. And that's when I started to get my body back. And that's when we went from, I'm going to learn how to walk, to it was like, no, now I'm going to invert. Now I'm going to do things where I actually have autonomy. And like the importance of movement here for these people. Talk about like the counterintuitive ideas that are there. Yeah, and it's it's hard, right? Because... With injuries and stuff, I, I get it. I've had so many, and and when they asked me most recently, asked me to list which joints I had dislocated. I I don't keep that top of mind, and I encourage a lot of people to try to let go uh, of little bits like that. You can write it down, but then 
don't take up brain space with it if you can because um, it can become really heavy. And this is where we're talking about the words that are used and frail is, is a really big one. And um, I, you know, it just with my own experiences and my own stubbornness, I have a lot of stubbornness, uh, which has served me well and poorly at times because it has pushed me beyond what I should have done as an EDSer, like 100%. Um, but it has also helped me see the resilience that is available to all humans. So the one thing that, that um, is tricky when it comes to movement is not, there's no one size fits all. And so sometimes when you try one on, it can make you worse. And our systems are more sensitive to it. So they have less, less wiggle room. You know, we're wiggly, but they have less wiggle room. Um, for tolerance, so they have a smaller range of tolerance. Somebody else can do a movement that maybe isn't serving their physiology super well long term, and they'll tolerate it for a lot longer. So in this way, we are like canaries in the coal mine. The challenge then, though, is not to give up, because even though one or two types of movement may not serve you, it, like, it's far from done, and I've spent a long time exploring movement I was in dance as of three years old. Uh, we swam, all sorts of things. And quite honestly, there are days where I, I remember a, a few years ago, back when travel was a thing, I was in BC and just had a, forgot something that I used to support my hips. So I was having a really hard time walking. And that sucks because I've had to retrain walking three times in my life, pretty distinctly, actually four if I can include what happened this winter. Um, and so for me, it was it was very frustrating because I felt like I'd been shot back very suddenly. And I was using my carry-on luggage as a means of support and I had to take breaks. And there's that judgment that comes in of like, you're failing and like, who are you to say that you're a coach? And all this stuff comes in and it's just like, cool, thank you gremlins. That's, that's using Brene Brown's term. Thank you, gremlins. You can go now. I remember texting Dane. I was just sitting because I wasn't able to carry my groceries back to the Airbnb. And I was just sitting on a ledge. And I was like, I'm so close. I'm like 200 meters away. And I just can't do it yet. And I have no uh, public shame anymore about like lying down and adjusting when I need to because I just like can't keep going otherwise. Uh, but I've learned those adjustments that help me to get, you know, my pelvis working. It's usually my pelvis um, that's the problem or T-spine. But one of the big things that happened throughout all of it is I did learn there were certain movement demands that I was asking of my body that I actually really needed to break up with. And that was hard. It was like, you know, you have a good cry about it because running for me was freedom, running in the trails. Uh, it allowed me to feel fast, feel free, escape with my brain, manage some crazy stressors that were going on in my life at the time and to learn that I had to break up with it um, if I wanted to see my hips through another couple decades uh, without surgery. Like, I, I was kind of meeting two roads. And so for me personally, it was like, okay, well, I actually really want to keep my own body parts because at this time, at that point in time, it was only in my late 20s. Um, and so in that filter, I was like, am I doing it all wrong? Do, like, do I really need to just, like, back off everything? And it, again, it wasn't an either or. It was an and. It was you need movement and you need to be able to recover from that movement. And that was a key filter change because even with my most recent like big injury, you know, get injuries every day, but like big, big one, I remember meeting with a friend um, and she said, you know, Freya, like you just, you just move too much. And that was at a point 
where I had barely been able to manu- been able to move. I could do like two things, so I did two things. I could balance on one leg and slightly turn my head, so that's what I did. Uh, I could walk for a few minutes before getting crazy symptoms, so that's what I did. And that's all I was trying to do. So to hear her say you need to do even less, just like, well, she also didn't have a good snapshot of what I was actually doing, so it was really hard to hear that, and it also was a massive internal conflict. I was like, maybe I've been wrong this whole time. Maybe I shouldn't be moving, but if I shouldn't be moving, then why? Huge discourse. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, (laughs) you need to move within your capacity, no matter who you are, hypermobile or not. Your capacity can change, because the key thing that came about in that time period, I went back and read some of Norman Deutsch's work, um, and it's all focused on neuroplasticity. And all I could think was like, I have a plastic nervous system, which means it is constantly capable of change, and that change might take longer than someone else, and that nervous system might need more recovery time than somebody else, but it can change. And that was what kind of like, tore all my movement systems down, tore all my beliefs around movement down, because I used to think that if I just got stronger, I'd be better, and deadlifting over 300 pounds, I was just like, this is brutal. Like, I had this distinct sensation of like, no, this is definitely not what I should be doing. Um, So breaking that all down, it's not just recover, it's not just move, it's and. And whatever movement you have access to, do that. So my motto at the time was do what you can when you can. And sometimes I could swim, but I couldn't walk fine, I swam. I kind of wish the streets at times were, were uh, water, which is funny given that I didn't like cold things. Got over that. Um, and I just needed to, largely I needed to reframe some of the things I was doing. Yes, yeah, so I had to remove some of the, the types of movement I was doing. But variability was key. So sticking to just one type actually didn't serve a lot of hypermobile bodies well, and I was working with a lot of hypermobile bodies. Um, you had to be able to recover from the stimulus. And starting small was good. It didn't mean that you stayed super small. And please understand, that doesn't mean like poundage or reps or whatnot, but just like even the movement challenge. That's the equivalent of saying, uh, I can take one step, that's enough. Well, you can grow that to two steps and three steps. And it was just understanding that variability serves us. We need to train only as hard as we can recover. Uh, When something's not serving you well, don't do more of it. Just change course and that totally fine and try the best you can any fear avoidance you have around movement any kinesiophobia it really helps to work with a practitioner because if you're not sure um, what you should be doing it helps to consult someone even if you don't have the financial means to like stay with them long term that's totally fine but do consult with someone and one thing I love is that I've seen more and more hypermobility specific coaches lately and they're in different domains which is awesome we need that (laughs) because not one mode won't work for everyone uh by any stretch and you know personality wise you have to you have to also trust the person and that brings me to the point of safety no matter what you do you have to remember you are plastic you can change it will take time and change just means like be more stable feel more balanced be able to do more of what you need to do in your day you can improve your function and I say that because I've been at the bottom of it where I needed all of the assistance um and I mean all of it (laughs) um and then from there you're plastic but your nervous system is telling you when it feels safe and not and you need to find ways to feel safe that's how we tap into 
growing our range and being plastic is reclaiming that safety. And so you may need to do that in a clinical setting. You may need to do that with a, like, coach or with a friend, whatever it is, find your safety and tap into that. Um, Bed rest, just after two days, we'll lose like 10% lung capacity. That's a big deal. And then from a stability standpoint, we are unfortunately predisposed to decondition really, really fast. So I had to do some medical testing for 48 hours that meant that I had to be sedentary. And I can tell you that my pain and my dislocations went up so much just in 48 hours. Uh, and so it's, it's like, at that point, I, I told my mom, I was like, tissue work isn't enough. I feel like I'm sinking into my joints, and I'm having to, like, try to do little positional isometrics to keep myself in place until I can stop this testing and then be free to start reestablishing uh, movement. And then just don't train like a body-typical person if uh, it's not serving you. Because I did that for years. I just kept trying to keep up to my peers and to what was, uh, what I thought was expected of me as a movement coach. And um, it just got me really, really hurt and beat up. <laughs> so it's not worth it. So that's where a diagnosis might help. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, it's true. And I can definitely confirm that working with a practitioner helps with the safety element. Because one of the factors in here that kind of steals the most safety is the pain and the chronic pain that comes up in the body. And the idea that I had had for so long was pain is a signal to stop. Pain is a signal to understand that you've done too much and that it's a bad thing. And it, it took a lot to get on board with the fact that moving through pain intelligently and with guidance was the way to get out of pain because the only way to actually treat it was to bring that movement and fluidity into joints. And it, it was so easy for me to fall into a sedentary cycle that put me into a pain spiral because I saw rest as the thing that was going to bring me relief, but it actually brought more pain. And I know that I've heard that a lot. I'm only, I can only assume how many times you've heard a, a client say they don't want to train because they're in pain. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've been lucky that, like, because I was working uh, for a time at one of the sports clinics here, people were being sent to me because they were in pain. So there was a trust that they could move under my guys, like you say, babysit my nervous system for me, please, which I thought was great because, uh, and I've been in, in on the client side of things too, right? Like having a coach watch and, and identify if something's up can be very, very helpful. Um, but I do hear and see a lot of people thinking that um, pain, and this is a huge, huge <laughs> topic, massive topic, so um, we'll touch on it here and there, but pain is the only input that we should listen to, and it should tell us to stop to move. Now, to stop moving, sorry, English thing um with acute pain and I think I've touched on this with acute pain uh say you broke something you do need to immobilize that area absolutely but even with that area immobilized the rest of you needs to move and that can help promote healing in the area that's been injured and so you know one of my clients went through shoulder surgery I said as soon as you're able to tolerate being upright arm was in a sling, but as soon as you're able to tolerate that, which should be within a day or two, 
here's a program that we can use for your lower body um, to help reduce tension, to help reduce compensation through all the other structures. Because, you know, with shoulder, shoulder surgery, most people's necks get very jacked up as a consequence of slings. And then that leads to low back stuff. And this helps us keep, keep moving, uh, keep our mitochondrial health, keep, so our energy plants, our little power plants. But when we stop fully and we don't find any other ways of moving, and that's why I hit on variability, because if you only have one way of moving and you lose that way of moving, which can happen, um, it can be really scary. So we, we need that variability so that if you hurt one thing, then moving the rest of the body will help promote healing in that one thing. Now, if we're talking about diffuse chronic pain, movement can be, a, as long as it feels safe and is safe for you, it can be a relief. Our joints need movement to heal. We need movement to help decompression throughout, um, or sorry, compression, decompression throughout our joints to pump fluid through. We need it to help maintain our balance, our proprioception, so your spatial awareness, as it were. And when we lose that, we can actually ramp up pain. And uh, in addition to that, if we then remove movement, removing movement can also ramp up pain. So movement can help us downregulate the pain response. And in addition to that, movement can help us sleep. So if we're not sleeping, and insomnia is a very common issue, we have a blog about that, and we did a, we also did a podcast about that. And if you're not moving, you likely won't sleep as well. And so then, if you're not sleeping well, you're also able, like your body will ramp up a pain response again. Again, there's no such thing as a pain nerve. Um, it's a pain response and our response is, uh, it can be picked up. It's our brain's interpretation of stimuli and multiple stimuli, not necessarily just movement. And so that's why chronic pain sensitization is so complex. And most people have to work with practitioners to kind of figure it out. And everyone has different inputs that will set off their pain. Uh, suffice it to say that movement here can really, it can help you downregulate, but it can also help you stabilize and avoid more injuries and so we don't end up accumulating a ton of them or we're managing them even though I know it can uh, take more work I mean the name of our company is move daily because that was also my motto during some of my worst times was just I just if I had two things I could do doing those two things I knew generally helped me and so it was more about moving daily checking in trying to get some balance back um, like literally standing on one leg and then you can grow from there. And there are some people with EDS who do crazy athletic events and others where their athletic event is is to do their own groceries and cook their own meal. And that's fine. Whatever your performance metric is, is totally fine. It doesn't have to be compared to anybody else. We always say that performance, uh, even when we're not talking about EDS or hypermobility, performance is relative to the individual. So you figure out what you need in your day to get through your day with as much ease as possible and to get through your week with as much ease as possible and grow from there. And it may take months and that's fine. I mean, it took us what, how many years to like, oh, you're walking and your body parts actually know that they are part of the same body. Excellent. That was our first big thing. And it took months. And it's just months of practice. And same with me, like rehabbing from my whole spine thing and arm and brainstem thing has taken years. But if we can find some sort of joy in the process and really do celebrate your little wins, whatever they are, celebrate your little wins. The first day I was allowed to like walk around the block after a period of time where I couldn't 
was like, yeah, I'm outside, I'm doing it. It's fine. I've also raced and placed high, uh, or well, I should say. And I'm not going to lie, the life wins are amazing because it means I get my, my independence back. And the movement wins are also amazing because they bolster confidence and competence in, in self. And I'm just like very stubborn and I like being independent, which I think a lot of people do. Um, I have no problem sharing tasks, but I also, I also feel very grateful for when I can do things under my own steam. And so I think if people just set little movement goals that are functional to their daily lives, that can really help get out of a, a point of severe deconditioning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that independence piece is vital as well, especially in terms of just like getting on board with that. Not only do you have say in the outcome of what's going on with you, but like that you are still a functional human being and pain management and treatment is such a factor there in terms of relief and happiness and actually being able to enjoy your life. Um, But there's so many different approaches to that. One of the first ones that I was handed was braces, orthotics, back braces, wrist, finger, the whole thing, like just support as much of your framework as possible. And you can speak to that better than I can in terms of should braces be used, mobility aids? Well, see, and that's the thing is that I think there's no shame in using them at all. And and that's part where where people can feel really shamed and 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 they use it, but they're embarrassed to admit they need it. They also can be temporary. And so that was one of the things when I was, uh, I think, 21 or 22, I was talking to one of my relatives, and I was just really resistant to do this one thing because I just I didn't know what that meant for me as a human if I needed that kind of assistance. And the thing is, it doesn't change your identity. You are who you are. Keep being who you are. Like I always say, be you because everyone else is taken. I'm sure I got that from somewhere, but I don't remember who. And um, what she said was you can use that to then go do the thing, meaning it gave me a, a little bit of a leg up so that then I could go do the thing. And over time, I didn't need that leg up anymore because I could do the thing. And so there was no shame in it at all. I want to hit that right off. Like if you need it because it helps you do the thing, then please use it. And also understand that it means you're not necessarily relegated to it. So, for example, um, with my neck injury, I had, like, no SEM, no trap. That holds your head up. Like, that's your buttress. Well, buttresses. They're on both sides. So, for me, I needed to get more assistance um, with, in terms of, like, neck support, a different kind of pillow, neck support if we drove, I couldn't sit up, all this stuff. Those were rules I needed at that time. And when I exercised, I exercised in a way that was to help rebuild some of the stability that the brace was currently giving me, or tape. Um, And I laughed because one of my good friends who's uh, taped me up and and treated me at times, um, (laughs) my pelvis had a a whole thing happen this winter. And I couldn't walk, I couldn't sit, I couldn't sit, like everything was awful (laughs) and he treated me got some things going and I was like okay it's in better alignment but I'm gonna throw up because this hurts so much so then he taped and the tape we laughed I was like how is this helping me that much it's tape 
<laughs> um, and he laughed. He's like, it's because you're made of bubble gum. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes you need more assistance. But that, that assistance is going to help you do this thing. And if you can be under your own steam as much as possible and use assistance when needed, it's very helpful. If somebody gives you the recommendation to wear a brace, please don't take that as like you're resigned that, you know, for life. Take that as an opportunity. So if it's an orthotic, you might need that if you decide to go for something that requires you like do something that requires you being on your feet for a longer period of time because your feet can get very tired or it might be built there to limit the amount of um, big toe extension because your toe extends too far uh, so it, it's a tool if we then use it like an orthotics all the time even at home our foot is not actually stabilizing and learning how to be a foot and so I had a, a physio tell a client of mine I don't know why you're doing those toe exercises. Your arches are fine. It's not about arches. It, it, well, I mean, it partially is because you want to fire through those arches. Um, it's, it's about having control of your appendages. And we can use a tool appropriately. Like if I, if I go for a longer ride inside, full disclosure, I wear an SI belt. It helps me maintain my pelvis in a better position and it really that tensile that little bit of tension inwards uh does help with the form and force closure closure of an SI joint so that was something I was really hesitant on but it helps <laughs> and so I was like oh well I you know I try to do as much without it when that's possible and it often is my other movement practices don't require it but that particular stimulus I needed that little bit of support Sometimes my tib-fib sublux and it makes walking incredibly painful. I have a tib-fib brace for that that I used when I need it. So it's more about understanding that you want to use those tools to go do the thing. And if the thing means go live your life, go have coffee with, with a friend, then great, do that. But it's where we also still need to try to retain as much strength and as much of our own strength as possible and build as much of our own strength as possible, no matter how long that takes, so that we're not all of a sudden becoming a collection of braces and we're afraid to move. Because the other side of it is if we have something doing the work for us, um, and this is more with some of the mechanical devices out there, they boast that they reduce muscle tone by 50%. That's not a good thing. Like, we, we do need to help recalibrate our muscle tone because sometimes we get really like too rigid, too tight, because our, our muscles are just working so bloody hard to keep us in place. Um, and we really need to work on our like deep stabilizers in those instances. But things can change. And if you need a mobility aid, use your mobility aid. If you find someday that you're like, actually, in this season, I feel great, great, don't use it. That happens. Like the seasonal changes of it, both of us can feel we're like, oh, winter's coming. <laughs> it's like my hips are talking already. So it's more about understanding the when and and the how and that it's it's not just like a sometimes I, I understand that the communication around it can be really fuzzy and it can hit home in a really hard way because people are given a brace and and no like orthotics they're given orthotics and then not told what to do to help their hips and their feet and their pelvic floor get strong so it's it's being given the tool and then also know what your body's tools are and use both yeah so, so in terms of those tools what about seeing manual practitioners like physio or chiro I think having a good team as someone with hypermobility is, in, is incredibly valuable 
And one of the practitioners um, that I met rel- like a couple of years ago said, well, how come you don't go to the emergency room? And I said, well, why would I go to the emergency room when I can go to the practitioners who know my body and know how to reduce certain joints? And she said, well, for pain management. And I was like, yeah, but going to my practitioners and getting the joints in place and calming my nervous system down is my pain management. So it different, st- like, it, I, I should also just mention, if you're going to the emergency room to get a joint reduced, there's no shame in that either, because trust me, my one of my parents has been there multiple, multiple times because it wasn't possible to reduce it any other way. It's more just that you've got to build your team because going to the ER for joint-related things in particular, I'm not talking about, like, breaks and, and anaphylaxis at all, but for joint-related dislocations in particular, unfortunately, leads from what I know, which is, you know, this much, to a lot of medical trauma. Um, and, you know, you usually get put on pretty heavy pain medication or, or sedation, which isn't particularly pleasant. So when it comes to practitioners, I actually encourage a lot of EDSers and hypermobile people to find gentle ones <laughs> who understand that hypermobility means that they will have to work gently with your system and you will likely need a much smaller treatment dose. And I have seen this across the board, so I feel comfortable saying that, that gentler techniques like biodynamic osteopathic uh, treatments, cranial sacral therapy, uh, medical acupuncture, so the CHIRO-IC does medical acupuncture and soft tissue work. Anything that keeps you calm and feeling safe is going to be well-received by your system. If you're going in and it's really intense tissue work, you're walking out super bruised, you got a massive adrenaline rush as they did a high-velocity adjustment, uh, you got sick after treatment, or if you got a mood change, like you got really angry or grumpy, those are all signs that it's not the right treatment for your body and your system. So, you know, it's like, I kind of talk about it like a toddler. If a toddler's screaming, don't scream back at it. And so, when our nervous systems are heightened, they're afraid, they're in pain, you need a treatment method that's calm and gentle. Even if it feels like, especially in our Western mind, we're like, it must hurt to be effective. So wrong. And I won't go down that route right now. But the point is, if a toddler's screaming, because your limbic system is equivalent to a toddler, that's not you personally, that's your limbic system, then you don't scream back. And so the treatment needs to be gentle and meet it where it's at. And you know what? I don't... I don't necessarily see, not all my practitioners are like EDS specific by any stretch of the imagination, but they're the ones who are humble enough to be like, oh, that's interesting. We're going to have a discourse. We're going to have a dialogue of how this feels and how this goes. And those have been the best practitioners I've seen where I'm able to say, you know what, I kind of like, I felt like I couldn't function and I wound up in bed the entire next day because I felt kind of ill and then slowly felt like I was putting myself back together. Like, oh, okay, we went a little too deep on that one. Great, it's a dialogue. Um, And just don't write off, please don't write off one treatment modality, even if you didn't like one practitioner. It's it's like anything else, right? Every every type of practitioner has a different flavor because they're a different human. And the important part is that you feel safe and that you also feel heard. And that can go a long, long way. (laughs) And one of the things, I guess, like, one of the gentlest practitioners on one of the loudest toddlers is the one that we love to ignore the most, and that's nutrition and the influence that the gut has in this realm. And 
I can't think of how many humans that I have sat across from in this discovery process where I've discussed with them if they've made any diet changes or if they consider themselves to have any intolerances or allergies and hard no because that's a thing that people don't like necessarily to engage with but how much safety and happiness is created and dispersed in your system from your gut is all of it it's pretty much all of it right (laughs) that's the science of that (laughs) but how how vital that nutrition is for the rest of it to work where we both have had different expressions of this saying where I said like if you are eating bad food you are basically poisoning your well and Freya suggested that you might just be pissing into the wind you could be doing both um but yeah speak to that in terms of EDS guts and the the role of nutrition here Well, so that's the interesting thing is that like when you look at the research and granted there are limitations there in the um, EDS population and at the time it was called JS, uh, sorry, JHS, Joint Hypermobility uh, Syndrome, they reported that like over 50 odd percent, like 56 percent or more reported digestive distress. And then on the IBS side of things in an IBS study, Um, something like 40 to 50% of them were reported to be hypermobile to a degree. And then you look at another one, and 86% of the EDSers listed uh, various subtypes of like GI distress, because your GI system, you can have issues at multiple levels, all levels, and so on. So the the point of it (laughs) is that you aren't necessarily what you eat, but what you eat influences what you are. So it means you didn't give yourself hypermobility because of what you ate as a child, and you didn't give yourself issues in that sense, And but you are influenced by what you eat. So we know the word inflammation is a very common one, reducing inflammation. There are a lot of bogus terms that float around that and diet claims, but at the end of the day, we have a, a greater propensity to be inflamed because of our porous and, and more sensitive nature. Again, think back to canaries in a coal mine. If I eat a slice of pizza, I will react way more heavily. Dane would need a whole pizza to react in that way, for example. Haven't had dairy in many, many, many years. Um, So the long and the short of it is that there's no one answer for everyone. I know some EDSers who thrive on plant-based diets. I personally have a more omnivore-based diet. And then there's everything in between. There is a certain type of uh, like elimination process you have to go through, and I, I recommend that if you are doing an elimination diet of any sort, please do it with a qualified practitioner. Please do not do that on your own, because what ultimately happens is people see a food they've reacted to, eliminate the entire food group when that wasn't necessary, and that can actually create more intolerances. But I've yet to meet an EDS person or person with HSC who does not have gut distress. And if you have gut distress, the number one way of addressing it is by managing your nutritional inputs. So there are a number of reasons why this can come about. Mast cells is one of the reasons. Um, they, they line your entire s- system, and they can become overly reactive. If you want a really good book about that, I would suggest you read Amber Walker's Mast Cells United because it's very, um, it's very 
helpful for the patient to understand and also understand what they can do to influence it. So I'm a big fan of books like that instead of some of the ones that I've read where it's like, and then we took this medication. I'm like, okay, meds have a time and place for sure, but I would also like to know what I can do nutritionally. So if you do an elimination diet of any sort, you absolutely need to have help with it to make sure you're not eliminating so much that you're then becoming intolerant and you're going to worsen your inflammation. The next reason is if you have the comorbidity, oh my gosh, I can't speak, comorbidity. See, that's an EDS thing though. (laughs) My throat and my soft palate get tired and then I can't enunciate. It's not that I've lost capability as a human being. Um, Anywho, POTS, they found that once they controlled for POTS, a lot of people's GI distress went down. Another thing is environmental toxicity. And again, it's one of those things that's come to light. And anytime something comes to light, people poo-poo it and say that like, oh, you know, you're just a hippie. Okay, fine, whatever. It's not true though. Our toxic load in our environment is way higher than it used to be, even when we were kids. So what we have to be mindful of is what we're getting as far as toxins. So we always promote that people eat as well as they can afford, but they make it a priority. That is to say, if they're eating out five times a week, we'd rather they allocate that financial load to to groceries um, from as high of a quality source as they can. And it, the sad part is, like, it's so hard to find anything that hasn't been sprayed in one way but uh, or another or peppered with antibiotics. But if you can try to find sources that are as clean as possible, I it really does help, especially with more porous systems, um, because the load on that system, think of it like a bucket, the load on a porous system is heavier already. So think of it this way, with EDS and hypermobility, where you, you have a difference in tissue structure, someone else's house is built out of brick or similar. Ours is built out of flowers growing up on a lattice. So everything gets in. And if we are bombarded with more and more environmental toxins, then we can get sicker more easily. And unless that's addressed, it doesn't matter what elimination diet you do or how you change those things. Uh, it's, it's just, again, it goes back to pissing in the wind. Unfortunately, all your really good efforts are missing a key point. The nervous system safety is, is another, another big thing. And if you don't feel safe with the food that you're eating, that can already lead your system to be in a more fight or flight state. Last but not least, you also have your alignment. So I touched on cranial cervical instability. I know from experience, firsthand experience as a person and professional that with it come gut changes. And if you're not breathing properly, you are not encouraging peristalsis through your gut. If you are not moving, you're also not encouraging peristalsis through your gut. This is why whatever you can do, do it. Because the movement piece is so crucial to making your gut function. The breath piece, which goes hand in hand with with how your body is receiving stress, uh, will also impact your gut. Like we are built to operate to move. And so even if that movement means like you're lying on the ground, it's very easy, low resistance, that's fine. It can still do the trick. But that's another big reason why people get stalls in their GI tract and get worse. And and, um, notably, medications can really muck around with with the gut too so it's something to be aware of if you are on any speak to your practitioner um, in case you're also getting digestive distress because the two can well one can exacerbate the other unfortunately I think the ethos that we've had here is that 
there's a lot of things to address. There's a lot of things to deal with. Um, but it's not, it's doable. A lot of it is in the control of the individual that is affected so much more than you might believe. But that doesn't mean that we don't have outside tools. And I know that's one of our favorite hobbies is to compare coping mechanisms <laughs> and yeah. uh, our collection of things. But at the same time, like that can get expensive if you are constantly trying to purchase a thing that is going to solve a problem. Um, so that list could be potentially infinite, um, but we did want to try and give you some that we have found to be helpful, good uses of money, um, and bring a lot of positivity into our life. So the categories that I gave us were um, tools that made the biggest difference, the most obscure, and the most accessible. Yes. So Freya, of your tools, what has made the biggest difference? To sleep, which then uh, is a catalyst into literally everything else, was a weighted blanket. That helped so much with some of the nighttime stuff that was happening. So a bamboo weighted blanket um, that can have its weight change, so it doesn't always have to be the same weight, but it's also cooling, so it's not overheating. That has been an absolute game changer uh, as far as sleep goes. I'll give a plus one to the weighted blanket as well. Can't go anywhere without it. Uh, I have a secondary one that travels with me to tattoo appointments. It's so good. Yes, the mini ones. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. It was a recommendation from one of my lovely clients who's also a movement um, coach. The company is Ravi. Um, yeah, the mini ones that we have. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah they're, they're powerful. They're helpful. So, Ravi, if you want to sponsor anybody, you have a human. <laughs> How about your most obscure tool? Uh, so the most obscure one is kind of what other people would define as weird. It's called a brain tap, and it was introduced to me as something that could help calm my nervous system down because I'm inherently a relative, like I'm a pretty calm person, but I could feel my nervous system after the spine injury and after the mold toxicity paired, like my nervous system was buzzing. And so a brain tap is a device that looks cheesy, but it's, They've got recordings that are vo both voice and music, um, so it's sound therapy and light therapy, both through the ear and eyes, and that brings so much calm to the nervous system. So I still use it. Uh, when I was acutely unwell, uh, I was told I was sick, and I was just like, really? I'm sick? But in hindsight, I'm like, oh, yeah, that wasn't good. Brain tap is amazing. I know it's an expensive device, so start with a weighted blanket, but brain tap's great. And how about your most accessible tool? Ground time. Like, spend time on the ground. It's honestly, I, I mean, you can do exercises down there. You can just roll around down there. You can sit. But at the end of the day, spending time on the ground, like, the ground is where I reestablish um, decompression. I reduce pain. I can reestablish some stability. I can relax fully. So spending time on the ground is extremely helpful and cheap. You, don't, you just need a ground. A ground. <laughs> a floor would be the other word. Perfect. <laughs> I'm going to keep that. I'm going to go with I need a ground. <laughs> I need a ground. Um, now, for you, what has been your biggest difference? Therapy. My biggest difference in terms of feeling better, reducing pain, and progressing with my health has been getting my mind on board. For me, that did mean going to like a classical psychotherapist, but it also meant that I did energy work. I've seen a lot of other practitioners in a multitude of modalities that have really allowed me to get my mind on board with what not only what I have to do, but what is possible. And um, what was your most obscure, would you say? 
My most obscure tool is probably my, my, my most concerning looking one, and it's mouth taping. Um, and it's what helps me regulate my breathing and sleeping at night, and I genuinely tape my mouth shut. Uh, Freya can offer science about that. I cannot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I was the one who recommended it to you, and you didn't flinch the way everyone else does. Uh, both Dana and I do this too, especially in periods of stress. It can downtune pain. Um, your sinuses produce nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator, so think things are opening uh, instead of vasoconstriction, the opposite. If you mouth breathe, this is a stress breathing response, so especially as with a hypermobile filter, that is going to increase tension, particularly in your neck, predispose you to headaches on waking, and destabilize you. So you're less stable throughout the rest of your system because you're not getting appropriate diaphragm movement. So it helps you relax, vasodilates things, because you get to breathe through your nose and benefit from the fact that your nose is this little antimicrobial, antibacterial filter for you, and that your sinuses have nitric oxide. And the only science that I have to confirm all of that is I wear the aura ring and I have been tracking that data for about a year and there is a noticeable difference in my sleep in those metrics when I am mouth taping versus when I am not mouth taping, specifically to the amount of deep sleep that I'm getting, which is vital in terms of pain and recovery and blah, blah things that I don't know about. <laughs> <laughs> blah, blah things. Yeah, you know, science. Yeah. Um, now, what is your most... <laughs> What is your most accessible? Uh, also ground, but specifically nature. Like being in trees, being connected to the actual physical earth, getting dirty and like, I don't know, just discharging that energy back into the ground where it's meant to be. Part of that has been about changing my footwear as well and actually having contact between my foot and the ground uh, because I live in a city. And so the nature here the best piece we have is sandwiched between a train track and a major highway, so it doesn't necessarily feel like that, but still actually touching something physical and tactile, it's the cheapest therapy. It's free. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When we spend time in nature, we can just go down to the trails that you're referencing, and all of a sudden we're looking for birds and we're hearing their calls and like it takes you out of yourself and that can be one of the most helpful things is you can get caught up in your head about am I doing the right thing am I not doing the right thing am I doing enough am I a valuable human and that's you know a, a lot of conversations can happen like that that are really troubling and then you get into nature and you're just like oh life isn't so bad so it's, it's good. It's helpful. Um, and then one thing I wanted to recommend is we always recommend a book. So you're welcome to as well. And the book that I'd recommend is a relatively recent one that was published. And I've purchased a lot of books over the many, many books over the years that Dane can attest to. And only a handful of those have been specific to hyper mobility because it's, again, it's an area that I think we're going to see more in. Uh, but this book is absolutely my favorite, and it's called The Trifecta Passport. So it's for anyone who has mast cell activation syndrome, EDS, and or HSD, and uh, POTS. Even if you have just one of those, it's a great book. And Amber Walker, has um, she's a lovely human who also wrote Mast Cells United, she has it as well, well, has all of them as well, and so some of it is personal, but it, she's applying a professional lens. She's got a ton of education to address all of this, and she applies it in such a way that's digestible for the end user, meaning you, <laughs> as, a, as a person, um, rather than needing a practitioner to give it out to you. It can be beneficial to practitioners too, for sure, but she gives you step-by-step -step things to follow. Um, she encourages you 
to take that whole person approach and to put all the pieces together. So the Trifecta Passport is the name of the book. We'll link it in. But it was just such a pleasure to see it and read it and be like, yes, somebody has, well, she's... (laughs) Uh, clearly worked very hard on it to summarize so much and it's based on whatever available research there is as well as her clinical practice for massive takeaways for people with hypermobility to see how they can empower themselves. And I am going to give a recommendation because I'm going to give the first recommendation Freya gave to me which was The Body Keeps the Score and that book is all around how trauma is stored in the body. That is one of the toughest reads I've ever had to get through and the amount of myself that I was confronted with while processing it was massive. It took me months. I had panic attacks. I had to step away from it. I have never been so challenged by something by the end of it going, I needed that. I needed all of that. Um, So if you do take it on and if it hits you, it's okay. And just take time. I remember you saying, do you need this back? Because I took it into the sauna with me. Yeah, I was like, like all wrinkled. I'm like, no, I bought it for you. But that's hilarious because way to like pair something so challenging with something like calming and soothing. Smart. Really? I had this moment where I love reading in the sauna and I was reading a lot of challenging books at this time. And I wasn't really thinking about the fact that like heat will allow glue to dissolve. And so these books were falling apart in my hands. And I was like, oh, I'm releasing it. It's going. I was like, no, this is glue. This is, that's how that's happening. But yeah, that book is literally just like full of sweat and tears at this point. It's perfect. <laughs> a lot of sweat and tears went into, uh, into the stories in that. Yeah. No, that's a great book. And, and I'm glad. And, you know, it's also, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge challenging read I know it took me a long time to, to get through the whole f- spectrum of it and um, if it's heavy for you just pair it with something light and fluffy or watch a tv show in between yeah reading it read it while holding a small dog if you can that's ideal yes, that is ideal yeah. that is ideal that's excellent <laughs> all right well Taylor thank you so much it's always a pleasure I know that we could go on for hours and we were like trying to censor ourselves throughout this but hopefully it's been of some use to someone out there but thank you so much for your time always and your input. And thank you guys. And we will see you next week. We didn't give you homework this week because this one wasn't about that. But we will see you next week with another podcast with homework. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.